Let's go over and say hello to my guest who's standing by. He is Derek Jensen. And Derek writes on how civilization is devastating the environment and the natural world and our society's denial of that fact. Uh, in 2008, Utney Reader listed Derek as one of the 50 visionaries changing the world. And he has a lot of books and articles that he's written out there. His most recent is Dreams. And it's a thorough critique against the fundamentalist Christian uh, legalist morality and materialistic um, view that Western civilization uh, is right, and it's right when it commits violence against nature. Nice to have you with us today, Derek. Hey, thanks for having me. Derek, sustainability, according to the UN definition, is taking only what you need to survive from the available resources while not depriving future generations from relying on those same resources. So deconstruct, please, for us the fundamental basis of essential consciousness, or lack thereof, that supports and feeds and fuels Western civilization that is contrary to this definition of sustainability? Well, I would say that even in this definition, we, we have a little bit of a problem already when they talk about... Can you read the definition again, please? Yes. The uh, definition of sustainability is, uh, this is according to the UN, uh-huh. and I just pulled this this morning, uh, taking only what you need to survive from the available resources while not depriving future generations from relying on those same resources. Well, I think part of the problem is in perceiving the world as consistent in the first place. Um, so many indigenous people have said to me that the fundamental difference between Western and indigenous ways of being is that um, even the most open-minded Westerners still perceive listening to the natural world as a metaphor. Another way to say that is that um, for uh, most of us in the the Western world, um, we perceive the world as consisting of resources, and a resource is something that you can use and use up, as opposed to perceiving the world as consisting of other beings to enter into relationship with. And... There's a great line by a Canadian lumberman. When I look at trees, I see dollar bills. And if when you look at trees, you see dollar bills, you're going to treat them like dollar bills. You're going to use them and use them up. And if you look at trees and you see trees, you'll treat them differently. And if when I look at this particular tree, I see this particular tree, I see it differently still. I saw an example of this in the local newspaper last uh, crab season, uh, which was uh, the the harbor master was saying why the crabbers work so hard for the, I think it's 10 days or two weeks of the crab season. And they said, imagine all these, uh, there's all these envelopes on the ground, and every envelope has a dollar fifty in it. That's how much they can sell each crab for. Every envelope has a dollar fifty in it. You're going to run around picking up as many envelopes as you can. Well, the problem with this, many problems, one of them is that there actually aren't envelopes filled with a dollar fifty. What they are is other beings whose lives are just as precious to them as yours is to you and mine is to me. And the same is true for, you know, trees. The same is true for the soil. The soil is a living being. Um, And this is not, you know, cosmic woo-woo thinking. This is um, simply true. What is it? Every gram of of soil has, I don't know, I'm making up the numbers, you know, 100,000 different beings in it. And 
um, maybe a million, I don't know, a lot. It's um, No, anyway, it's, it's, a it's a, it, more bacteria than there are people on Earth, which would be more than 7 billion bacteria. And so part of the point, yes, exactly, and part of the point is that we are, when the world is, is um, you know, I don't even use the term ecosystem anymore because it's machine language. Um, it's, it's natural communities. There are these, these communities that are incredibly complex and... Um, and okay, so now back to you know that that was a long sort of parenthetical comment about the word resources, but then there's there's another problem too, which is that um, which has to do with this whole notion of resources, which is that so many people in this culture, it's an incredibly narcissistic culture where we don't perceive anyone else as having needs of their own and. Something that I really hate about seeing articles in the newspaper about um, uh, species extinction, for example, is that if if some article talks about how salmon populations are collapsing, they always have to bring it back to um, how much that's going to cost somebody financially. And it ends up that the only reason that they particularly care about they being a lot of people in this culture and sort of the, the general discourse, the only reason they would care that Sam would go extinct is because it would cost fishermen money or the only reason they would care about you know this or that being. And I have to mention that one of the most important books I ever read in my life was um, The Natural Alien by Neil Evenden. I read it in my, I, did, I was in a library in my late 20s and it jumped off the bookshelf at me, and it was the first book I ever read that didn't take the utilitarian worldview, this notion that everybody is here for us as a given. I remember this one exchange that he described in the book where he says, what do you do if you're describing you know, why some creature needs to be protected? And then at the end, when you get done giving this impassioned plea, the person says, well, that's all fine, but what good is it? And... Neil Evenden said, well, really the only way you can respond to this is by saying, well, what good are you? And not to insult the other person, but to show the stupidity and the craziness of a whole utilitarian worldview. Um, I mean, I'm sure we've all seen those, those analyses where if they figure out, um, you know, that, that you would be worth um, $7.50 if they, you know, if they took your bones for $2 to make to make fertilizer in your blood for $4. And, you know, we're actually not worth that much if we just look at us in terms of, you know, meat and bones and blood. But our value is much greater. One more thing, and then I'll, I'll shut up about this, that I was doing a, um, uh, a talk by video with some people at, at Yale, and this one guy um, was talking about, don't I think it's great that there are some economists who are starting to put economic values on forests besides their value as timber. I said, no, I don't think that's actually so good. I mean, sure, in a practical sense, it's better that it be valued for its ability to stop floods and everything, but I really don't like it otherwise because I think it's, it's merely bringing everything into this horrible system where everything is valued only by where money is more important than life. And I said, for example, you know, how much are you worth? I, I did that exact thing right there. And 
he, he said, well, actually, the U.N. has put an, a value on my life, and the value on my life, according since I live in the United States, since I'm going to Yale, since I'm fairly high earner, high earner income, I mean, high income potential, that my value would be about $4 million or something like that. I said, well, okay, great. So let's, um, why don't we make a deal right now where the government will give your family $5 million and they'll kill you? So how's that sound? I mean, sound like a good deal. Actually, it's a great economic deal because you're only worth four million. They're going to give you five million, and he didn't really like the idea. Um, and my point in bringing all that up is that I don't think we can ever have a way of living that will be sustainable so long as um, so long as we perceive the world as consisting of resources as opposed to as consisting of other beings with whom we should have. Which doesn't mean that we can't we can't eat them. It does, I'm not talking about vegetarianism, non-vegetarianism, I'm not saying you can never use a tree, but you have to, um, you have to recognize that um, this other, that this tree has its own life too, and, and it has a role to play in the community. Okay. I'm going to share a thought, then I'm going to ask you a philosophical, metaphysical question, all right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I had a chance to see An Inconvenient Truth in a theater, and I was on tour at the time, and I decided to go look at it. And it was a, it was a upscale, uh, more liberal environment. And uh, I watched the film, and there were certainly a lot of things I appreciated about the film, and I so stated uh, what I thought could have been expanded on significantly were showing all the alternatives. In other words, you show the problem, now give us some good, strong reason to believe in hope beyond the problem. And I didn't feel that was, uh, was there. Also, I thought it would have been very good of Al Gore had he at least explained his own complicity with Bill Clinton in being one of the most non-environmental friendly presidencies in American history. And I had over 227 um, areas I had studied and was doing a report on about how the faux Democrats, or faux liberals, I should say, um, had really been at the front of destroying the environment on behalf of corporate sponsors. Anyhow, that never happened. But afterwards, there were a lot of people talking out in the lobby of the theater, and I was just kind of hanging back and uh, getting some ideas since these were open discussions, and, and I was just listening. And uh, they were talking about how important this information was. And then... <laughs> This is the kicker. We went outside, right? Everybody was going to go home. I'm going to guess there's about 400 people. I just see nothing but Bentleys, BMWs, SUVs, nothing but that. But then right beside the theater, there was a big Starbucks. So that place became immediately uh, full. So I went inside, and I'm looking, and it's all junk food. And, of course, and it's, it's coffee. And then the question is, because I had just done a report on this a week before, about how much of the people paid who harvest those coffee beans? What are the environmental conditions under which they are grown? How much of nature is abused in the process of getting us the coffee bean? And then um, I was driving uh, back to my hotel, and I went through this very nice neighborhood, a kind of a, a beautiful uh, homes, and I saw all these cars that left at the same time pulling in these homes. So here we have people who are very, um, uh, very 
um, motivated by a film that shows that they and everything in their lifestyle, from the private jets and the big homes they don't need and, and the uh, eating the junk food, but gourmet junk food, of course, and uh, driving their gigantic car guzzlers, that seems to be disconnected. That part of their reality is disconnected from this so-called ideal thought. If I think in something, read something, view something that's more idealistic, I don't have to change anything in my own life. Your thoughts on that kind of living hypocrisy that both the left and the right breed every day? Well, I think the one thing that can't be questioned, I think one of the things that can't be questioned in this culture is um, is capitalism itself and civilization itself and industrialism. And one of the problems I had with, with that film, and I actually just saw... Um, Food Inc. a few days ago, which I'd never seen before. And I had the same problem with it, that many of these films do great jobs of, of laying out these horrendous problems, and then when it comes to solutions, they fall apart completely because they refuse to question capitalism. And My thoughts on that real quick, and then I'll, I'll, I'll not interrupt you. Uh, everyone says, you've got to see Food Inc., Food Inc. Okay. So the opening scene... The writer, director, producer of the film is in a fast food joint eating a big hamburger that he says he loves and is his favorite food. And I'm thinking, all right, um, maybe there'll be some epiphany in the film where he'll say, but I, I learned the suffering of the animals. He had no problem with you causing suffering of the animals, providing it was organic suffering. As long as you uh, were able to feed an animal, then kill it organically. And he actually showed it in one scene. If you remember, the guy's just sitting there talking. He's, he's cutting the chickens apart and, and disentrailing them. And, and I'm thinking, whoa, you know, what part of this? So once again, what you have is you have people who have some parts of a puzzle, but not all of it. And they're not looking for the other parts. They think whatever they have is the whole picture. So what is shared about uh, commercial farming, good. That part I could support. It's how limited we go in making our message um, uh, all-inclusive. We just don't seem to have that in our well, society. Well, one of the things that happens if you don't question the larger picture, such as Al Gore not questioning capitalism, um, is that it ends up that the solutions you present are going to be... Capitalist-driven. Um, are going to be capitalist. And and they're going to be superficial, and they will be absurd. They won't be up to the scale of the problem. There's one of my favorite books ever was this book called The Nazi Doctors by Robert J. Lifton. And in this book, he asked how it was that men who had taken, people, men in this case, who had taken the Hippocratic Oath could um, work in Nazi death camps. And what he found was that actually many of the doctors um, cared very deeply for the health of the inmates. And they would do everything they could to um, to help the inmates. Um, for example, they would, if they were in pain, they would give them an aspirin to lick, or if they were, uh, they would give them an extra scrap of potato, or they would hide them from the selection officers going to kill them. They would do all this this stuff that was very important, except they wouldn't do the most important thing of all, which is they wouldn't question the existence of the death camp itself. And this is what I see so many people doing, which is. Let's fiddle, and you, it's, a, it's the same with food ink as it is with um, An Inconvenient Truth, as it is with all of these, that, that many of these people, many of these people, um, you know, may or may not be of good heart, and they may really want to present some solutions, 
But as long as they don't question the fundamental, <coughs> excuse me, as long as they don't go to, to the foundations of the problem, the solutions are going to be, and I see this with environmentalists all the time. So many of us want to work as hard as we can to protect us of that piece of ground, but we aren't actually questioning why is this ground being destroyed in the first place. And if you don't question, um, if you don't question agriculture, you can't solve the problems that are caused by agriculture. And if you don't question uh, industrialization, you can't solve the problems that are caused by industrialization. And so part of it is, um, and I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't do activism on specific issues. And I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't do um, films, as you're doing with all these YouTube videos, that, um, that show problems and work on particular issues. I think that that's incredibly important stuff. At the same time, I think that it's also really important to recognize that the problems are, are, are deeper and that... Um, you know, wind energy is not going to solve the problems caused by um, a, a larger industrial system any more than um, than increased regulation of slaughterhouses or increased regulation of Monsanto will solve the 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 huge problems caused by mass agriculture in the first place. I would agree with that, Derek. My last question for you. And again, as I mentioned, this is more philosophical and metaphysical, and it's rarely ever raised in progressive alternative media, particularly by liberals, and that's the concept of evil. Usually we only hear this term used in referring to brutal dictatorships, such as the Nazis or Pol Pot or Mao's Cultural Revolution, where there was indiscriminate violence for the sake of violence. But rarely do we ever speak about the evil of Wall Street or Christian radicalism, the government, uh, the Tea Party support of the corporate rape of people's livelihoods, or the philosophy of Ayn Rand. Yes, we are happy to speak of evil of Islamo-terrorism, but we never step back and look at the evil, and I don't exclude demonic evil either, that is inflicted daily by energy companies, companies like Monsanto and Walmart and Wall Street speculators and politicians. So I'd like to hear your thoughts about this and how you see, if you do, I'm not assuming you do, uh, but if you do, the kind of evil is possibly an inherent attribute of Western civilization's current gospel of how it defines itself. Wow, what a great question, and um, I wish we had, a, a, you know, hours and hours to, to spend on this, because I think this is, this is, this is a, a hugely important question. I, I think that um, there is a, you know, I've written, what, 18, 20 books now trying to describe why this culture is so destructive, and for me... Um, simple uh, things like, oh, people are just greedy, doesn't really work. And one of the reasons that that's not sufficient is because um, this culture is killing, killing the planet, and it doesn't do, it's no use retiring rich on a planet being murdered. And also, um, another thing that helps me understand this is the level of violence against, against women in this culture. Um, the gold standard studies are that one out of every four women is raped in our lifetime. Another one-fifth have to fend off rape attempts. And so if we just do the numbers on that, there's about 7 billion humans on the planet, so about 3.5 billion are women. 
so that means that about 800 million women will be raped in their lifetime, and let's say half of them have not yet been raped. They're, they're too young. So it's, it's, that means 400 million women living right now have been sexually assaulted, and that's, um, that's larger than the capital H Holocaust. It's larger even than the, slave, than, than the number of people killed in the slave trade, and we don't talk about that. And my point in bringing all that up is that, yes, I understand the, the feminist analysis of how rape is an act of political terror in order to um, create a group of subservient women to change the behavior of half the human population. I understand that. But that doesn't alter the fact that, and also most of the rapes are being done not by you know burly strangers who break in through the window, but instead it's being done by dad, by uncle, by babysitter, by people who know them. And my point is, there's not, I understand, once again, the feminist analysis of how that's an act of political terror, but at the same time, it's not sufficient to explain it to me. If people are going to that drastically harm those they love or purport to love, that's really, really messed up. And um, so part, you know, honestly, one of the only ways that I can um, understand the rapaciousness, the insatiability of the dominant culture, 90% of the large fish in the oceans are gone. And I'm sure you've, you've noticed that the, the attitude of governments toward the melting ice caps is not horror or shame or let's do something about this. Resource exploration. It's lust. It's this eagerness that lust is the only word I can come up with for the additional minerals that they're going to be able to get access to and the additional oil. And that sort of insanity, that sort of... Um, you know, it would be a whole huge topic for us to talk about what is the okay. source of that evil. Then Derek, yes, I do believe that, it's, that, there is, that that is evil. Well, I do, too. I just believe it's more, it is more endemic than what we appreciate, and it's specifically able to be manifested in those who are so insecure and so disconnected from the spiritual. You cannot have half of a truth as the basis of your life. It's like homeopathy. If you recognize that homeopathy works, then you have to recognize its opposite is also working, which means that if a very subtle energy of a product is able to rebalance the energies of a body, the humor immune system, for example. So something that would cause a burn uh, and manifestation of symptoms burn, like uh, putting your hand over a fire, then if you use poison ivy homeopathically, uh, something would cause, uh, if you put, uh, let's say if you put poison ivy on your skin, you're gonna blister and, and redden. So by using homeopathy, from poison ivy on a burn, it helps heal the burn. It's based upon the laws of similars. The same has to be true for everything in life. You cannot have an isolated universal truth. It's just, are you wise enough to apply it to everyday living? So you cannot have a body that is born of a spiritual purity, an inner universal connectedness to all things that are perfect, without also acknowledging a universal evil that is also um, it is also interconnected, is which do we end up manifesting, honoring, and living through? 
And so this whole idea that I love you, but I'm going to have to hurt you is non-existent. Either you're loving someone or you're hurting them. You can't hurt someone you love. Do you understand what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. So yeah, we, yeah. Have, we have people who say, I'm going to serve you, and then serve themselves. We have people who say, I care about the wilderness, and then exploit it. Well, which is it? Do you care about the wilderness? In which case, you're going to not exploit it? So we end up living with a dual reality. Dualism is virtually the new norm. You can tell me one thing and do the opposite, and I'll believe what you tell me, and I'll deny or apologize for what you've actually done. The Democrats are masters of doing it. Look at Bill Clinton. Look at Barack Obama. The Republicans are masters of doing it. Look at George Bush and George Bush. It doesn't matter. And Reagan, these are all sociopathic personalities. These are people who manifest the energies that they have perfected. And then how do you hide the ugly nature, the dark side of your being? In other words, if you're a liar, but you don't want the world to believe you're a liar, how do you convince the world you're not a liar? If you're a psychopath, a narcissist, who only cares about yourself and are disconnected from the consequences of other people from your actions, how do you then make people believe you care about them? So the art of manifesting energies that you are the opposite of is itself what most people put their, most of their energy in. So hence you have people who are fundamentally corrupt, evil, but cannot ever get elected, win, or have anything go their way if that manifests. So they hide that, manifest its opposite, and then go through plausible deniability when they are caught and have others around them who will deny on their behalf, forgive them on their behalf, apologize on their behalf. And we see this all the time in everything. And it is only when you step aside from the ism that you're a part of, Catholicism, Judaism, capitalism, communism, uh, Marxism, whatever it is, and simply say, what is the truth of this moment? And then focus your energy on that truth. And if the truth is, if I want a sustainable world, I, Gary and all, have to make myself sustainable. And how do I do that? What do I need for health and happiness? and then focus upon that, then look, are others doing the same? And hence, I challenged Al Gore. Please, Al, get rid of the private jets, you know, uh, become a vegan, become really conscious. Instead of making a gigantic hundreds of millions of dollar empire, owning current television and everything else, from being the, the new God figure in the environmental movement. Because the real environmentalist, who didn't have the public appeal and didn't win the Nobel Prize, et cetera, those are the people who are forgotten. And suddenly all the work of the people who've done a good job and who've lived it, who've walked it and talked it, never again are they paid attention to because they're not, they're not the hip person on the block. And so unfortunately, we're, we as a society, even in the environmental movement, cannot recognize it. And I, I would assume that you share some of those points of view. Final quick thought, Derek. Well, I think, I think that... that there's so much that you said that's really good there. And then I would also just add that one of the important things is there's also institutional power, that I think that the important thing is not that we necessarily navigate systems of oppressive power with as much integrity as possible. I, I think that that's one important thing, but I think it's, it's really, really important that we dismantle those systems of oppressive power. 
That's, I guess that's I, why I'd end with this. I would absolutely agree, and that's what those of us who are not attached to the system and therefore can see it for its strength and weaknesses will be trying to do. Derek, thank you very much. I look forward to an extended conversation in the near future. I'll have you back on our progressive commentary hour where we have one full hour or longer if we need be uh, to discuss this in depth. That sounds great.